Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Before we jump into our January livestream, let me go ahead and apologize real quick for having taken so long to have gotten the December livestream up on the audio-only version here on SoundCloud and iTunes. Along with that, I also accidentally uploaded a bad copy of the narration-only version of the episode from last week, and that had two copies of the same one playing at the same time. We got that fixed the next day, but it was unfortunate that got uploaded in the first place, and we'll try to avoid having that happen again in the future. So with those two out of the way, welcome to our January livestream. We'll be getting started in just a moment, so it's a great time to start getting questions into the chat window for our moderators to review and copy over to me so we can jump right into the Q&A. If we don't have a chance to get to your questions today, feel free to leave them in the comments section on the video, and I'll try to get to them a while after the show, or visit any of our social media sites like Reddit and Facebook to continue the discussion with me or the other audience members. And let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly live stream. We're going to get started with questions in just a moment, please make sure to relay those into the chat window so our mods can go ahead and pick them out. I gather one of them's having a little bit of trouble logging in so I might have to grab them straight out the screen for a bit. Uh, we did have one I noticed in the chat as we were getting started and that was about the uh, Dyson Swarms and whether or not they'd always look the same inside a fusion economy. When you do with a Dyson Swarm or a Dyson Sphere, you're englobing an entire star so that uh, we would expect all the visual light or most of the visual light to disappear and be replaced with infrared light that was expended as waste heat. It's got to expend it as waste heat though, as infrared. It could be a higher frequency or a lower frequency than what we expect from Earth, um, but that infrared's got to come out otherwise you cook the people inside it. Uh, they'd heat up very, very quickly. The sun is, on average, a couple million degrees or more, and uh, the uh, mass of it is like 500 times that of the entire solar system, so if it wasn't dispensing that in the infrared, everything would cook in short order. But the question then becomes, if you've got something like fusion power, or if you've got something like um, you know a black hole that you're using as a power source, instead of stars, would you still expect that kind of Dyson, um, Dyson dilemma effect where they'd spread out and eat up every star so you couldn't see the night sky? or where you'd just be able to see one lone Dyson. And the thing is, um, if you've got that thing sitting there giving off light, you're probably going to take advantage of it because it's free power that's going to use one way or another. But you could also, by means of star lifting, go ahead and move that into um, into your fusion reactors, lift the gas off the star and, and move it to your fusion reactors, or dump it into a black hole and get better power efficiency. And so the thing is, would you still see that going around stars? And you'd still expect an englobement of that star to pull the matter off it, and if you can't pull the matter off it, you'd still englobe it for the free power so it doesn't go to waste. But for those actual artificial power sources like a fusion economy or a black hole economy, whether or not you are tightening up or spreading out, the thing is the bigger you get, uh, your, your density kind of has to fall off with the inverse power of the radius of your swarm. And so you are going to end up still with the same effect though because you're falling off to get yourself as close together as you can without uh, overheating. And that was also something that's going to look like a big spherical glob anyway, and at that same frequency range. It might be bigger or smaller in terms of net power output than a star would be, but then stars vary very wildly. And if you're on the very heavy end of that, a very, very large civilization like that that's much bigger than a single star would output, even a giant, that's going to be very hard to miss because that's a gigantic infrared blob. So basically, one way or another, you end up with that that uh, Dyson effect that we refer to, which is not so much about the Dyson swarm itself, but rather the waste heat of a, of a very large civilization that's trying to keep itself fairly compact. Now, it's always possible they might spread out really thin, but then the question is why? You know, when you get to about the size of a Dyson swarm, let alone bigger, and again, the, the more energy you've got, the more spread out you have to be to an inverse with the actual uh, power you're producing out. Um, so if you're bigger than a star in terms of your power output, you have to be much, much bigger as your englobement. Um, you can pack everybody in very, very tight, but you can only pack them in as tight as you can get rid of the waste heat. And you can pack them in loose too, but you're already so spread out. I mean, these things have a density of, of considerably less than anything we expect on Earth that you wouldn't really see people wanting to spread out that much for the sake of privacy. You know, uh, uh, whether it's 100 kilometers between you and the next station or a million, 
that's a lot of empty space. And so essentially you're always going to expect to see that packing. There might be some people spread out, but not so much that the entire civilization would be because they want that minimum signal light, that minimum travel time, that minimum travel energy. So you would be packed together and still get the exact same effect. Okay. We have a question from Jazzman. He asks, have you ever read, I have, I have a mouth, but I must scream. I think that's uh, I have no mouth, but I must scream. That's by Holden Ellison. One of his famous short stories, and I, I don't remember was that one of our books of the month or not. It's a short story, so I don't know if I'd have done it as book of the month. Um, yes, it's one of my favorites. Um, actually, Holland Nelson's one of the few famous sci-fi writers I've actually met. Way back around 2000 or so, I saw him at the library giving me a talk with my mom, who's a big sci-fi fan too. And uh, he was supposed to be talking about Ray Bradbury's book, uh, Fahrenheit 451, but he spent the entire time talking about other things. He had his glue door seats for like three hours. That man is just a, well, was just a, a phenomenal talker. And um, he's from my area in Ohio. So, um, but yes, I have read that book and I recommend it to everybody else. The short story, I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream. Uh, Event Horizon uh, says, Greetings from Maine. Question Do you play Corporal Space Program by any chance? I know of it, but I don't actually play it myself. I'm always way behind on video games or simulators and. Uh, it's, uh, I've seen the product of it, it looks pretty awesome, but I just haven't had the time to really get into it too much myself. I know it's very popular with a lot of the audience, though. Okay, um, let me pop another question real quick. Uh, Brian A. Bones asks, why doesn't every animal end up evolving into a human? Hmm. Uh, well, that's actually, because there's a lot of questions to unpack in that one. Um, you know, when we're looking at science fiction, there's often the idea that, uh, all aliens will look humanoid. And, uh, that of course has nothing to do with expectation that has to do with makeup budgets. You know, so it's hard to put together new alien species from like Star Trek every week. So you go with very, uh, simple things that make them look clearly non-human. So, you know, they're an alien, but, um, <clears throat> as to congruent evolution, the human form is a pretty impressive, uh, one for wild purposes. You know, it's very well designed to, uh, uh, to allow us to dissipate heat very quickly. And uh, we do tend to think that's one of the reasons why we have the bigger brain in the first place. We're better at heat dissipation. We've got uh, that capacity of sweat, for instance, where a persistence predator it's called. One of those types of things can just chase after its prey a lot. Um, but uh, there's no real reason why anything would evolve specifically to a human form, if that's the question. If, on the other hand, the question is, why doesn't everything evolve to have the same intelligence as a human? we're the first ones on the scene and whichever one's first on the scene kind of changes the landscape. You know, um, we don't know that if we didn't wait another million or 10 million years, we wouldn't have had intelligent raccoons or dolphins or things like that that were at the human level. But we also don't know that that necessarily is the one that, um, you know, that we don't know that high intelligence is something that evolution would always aim for. You know, most things on earth are, are much more evolved than humans, as strange as that sounds, and are not intelligent. And so what do we mean by evolved? If we're assuming that each generation brings greater complexity, right, so that the most evolved thing or greater, greater tuning to one's environment, and again, it always depends on what do you mean by evolution having an end goal, for, you know, of what's most evolved, because of course evolution doesn't have goals. Um, I think even a moment ago I was saying we are designed, right, that's... Um, uh, if we're assuming that evolution, random evolution towards things has no particular end goal, then you'd have to say the only legitimate way to measure how evolved something is by how many generations it had since abiogenesis occurred. So what would be most evolved? Well, it wouldn't be humans. Of all the species on this planet, the one that has least generations back, in terms of animals at least, would presumably be humans, but we have very long lifetimes and very long rates between when we uh, breed. We take like 10 to 20 years before we even start getting in that zone. Um, obviously longer these days, but even fairly uh, antique human, uh, not, I should say antique, ancient humans tend to have pretty long growth periods too. And so we have some of the longest generations, obviously there's certain trees or things like that that last longer, whereas some bacteria that reproduces every 12 hours has, you know, billions of generations more than us to, uh, to say it's more evolved than that. So if that's the case, you can't really say that somebody that's had more generations to evolve is is um, is less evolved than us, and so you can't say that they would necessarily be aiming towards intelligence as a natural track. So again, there's a temptation to assume that uh, evolution leads to intelligence and higher intelligence, but a lot of the biologists I know who said that's not very likely to be the case, and that's obviously very important for Fermi paradox, but we really don't know yet. <clears throat> um, let's see. 
Libertarian Lennis Rance asks, are you familiar with the German science fiction series Perry Roden? I've heard of it, but that's about it. Uh, I know some parts were translated. I'm afraid that's uh, pretty much all I do know is that there was a series called, uh, well, a series I thought was written by Perry Roden, but I guess it's called Perry Roden. Uh, and that, that brings a memory, but that's about it. Uh, thank you, Nathan Lusso. He is asking, I was wondering if you'd heard of a hall of, if you had a hall effect thruster in orbit with an exhaust velocity about the escape velocity of Earth, would the exhaust escape? Uh, it depended on which direction it was being pointed. If you've got an exhaust velocity that exceeds what the orbital, velo- what the escape velocity would be while you're in orbit, which of course is lower than when you're on the planet, and it's aimed, you know, away, then yes, it's going to escape. If on the other hand, it's aimed down toward the Earth, then no, it would not. And of course, these things are usually aimed at an angle as opposed to a perfect one or not. So generally speaking, if something's running with an exhaust velocity that just has to be the same as Earth's escape velocity, it's probably not going to escape. It would usually need to be higher or pointed in the right direction. But uh, yes, it would escape. Um, and for that matter, a lot of it would get ionized and leave later on too, as it just got hit by sunlight and pushed away. Um, ASDFGHKJKL. Looking at my keyboard for that one. Middle keyboard asks, what do you think would be a good way to clean debris out of Earth's orbit to clean up and prevent Kessler syndrome? We discussed that a little bit in, I believe, the was it Space Channels episode or in the orbital infrastructure episode. Kessler syndrome is uh, a concern we have that if you have debris, if you have things orbiting in space, if you get debris, it can go hit something else and generate more debris and cause more things to go out and get more debris and kind of chain react until you're having the, everything in orbit just blasted into smithereens and kind of cut you off in space travel. Um, how will you go about cleaning that up? If you are dealing with it in orbit in little bits to prevent the cascade effect, there's a number of options available you on the table. But uh, if you're trying to do it ground side, probably your best way to do that was what we call a laser broom and uh, or a laser ablative broom. What you're doing then is hitting something with a laser, and you're not vaporizing it. You could vaporize the piece of debris, and you can shoot a laser up from uh, from the ground. We, I think we have one at White Sands that's been our prototype for that. Um, but trying to vaporize the entire object is going to be much more difficult and much more energy intensive. What you're instead doing is vaporizing just a little bit off the one side of it. You give it a little zap, and then it blades the side, and some of the material goes spraying off as vapor. And, of course, that amounts to a rocket flame. And if you're hitting that right, uh, it's going to fall down, right, or fall, or escape. And of course, it's even nicer if you can do this from high orbit, because then you can ablate the thing from the top, as it were, so it just blows down into the planet and burns up on the way down. But the laser room is probably your best approach. Um, let's see, Valley Albu asks, do you think about gambling in the future like Space Poker or Sabak? Sabak uh, is from Star Wars. I don't know if it's actually in the main canon, um, but uh, it's the game that Han Solo likes to play, uh, as well with Lando Calrissian. Um, and I know they have cards that are electronic and change what they are faces for that, but uh, uh, future games, we did actually look at that in future sports a little bit, but that was more interested in athletic activities as opposed to uh, like card games. There are lots of card games out there, and I, I would normally say, yes, you'll have tons more, and that's probably the case. You know, the longer civilization is around and the bigger it gets, the more games you'd expect it to collect. But at the same time, you know, when I was a kid, the, everybody knew how to play at least a couple card games, and they knew how to play chess and checkers. And that was because those were pretty much your games. And you're starting to get a lot of other uh, games from that uh, era that were popping up, all those board games like Life or Candyland, and a lot of those 3M games like Acquire, for instance. But... Uh, you know, we have such an increasing diversity of games available to people um, that I'm actually wondering if cards would stay as the main game. Nice thing about cards, it was a deck you carried around and so you could play it anywhere and fit into something the size of a wallet or a pocket. Um, now you have a smartphone that fits into your pocket. So, you know, I'm not sure that cards will really stay as the mainstay game in the future. I don't think they're going to go anywhere anytime soon, but... Uh, there's so many more of the game options available, and uh, there's so much more portability that maybe there's a good chance things like cards won't go out. Uh, it's, um, let's see. Mickey asks, do you believe that humanity will terraform Venus and Mars to be Earth-like plants with oceans and stable atmospheres? Truthfully, no, I don't think we probably will. I mean, maybe we would. We can. If you've seen um, Springtime on Mars or other episode Winter on Venus, we talk about how you could actually do that. But the thing is, um, 
you know, you can do a, a Earth-like habitat so much easier on something like an O'Neill cylinder that I often tend to wonder if you'd really go to that much effort to terraform an entire planet because it takes so long and you have to have the entire populational group that was involved in that stay committed to that task for centuries, uh, even while people living there are, are kind of getting used to it the way it is. Um, and, uh, you know, you might take them apart for resources to build shell wards or things like that, but I wouldn't go so far as to say I'd be surprised if it happened, but I, I, I tend to think it was the less likely scenario, um, that a full-blown terraforming of Venus or Mars is, uh, and I mean full-blown between the Earth-like planets as opposed to pale terraforming, where you, you know, cover Mars in domes or do cloud cities on Venus. I tend to think full-blown terraforming is less likely than not to be the eventual fate of these places. Um, Reven609 asks, have you ever read The Plan of Us by A.K. DeWidney? It's a book about two-dimensional life and technology. No, I've actually never heard of it, but I have heard of that author. Uh, A.K. DeWidney uh, wrote one of my favorite books as a kid, uh, 200% of Nothing. He's a uh, mathematician or statistician from Canada, assuming he's still alive. This was a book I read in the mid to late 80s. Um, and I would definitely say picking that book up is good. So I've not read Plan of Horse because I've not heard of it, but I'm tempted to now. Um, I would definitely recommend that book to uh, 200% of nothing to everyone though. Uh, Pedro Hafferman least asked, greetings from Giessen. Uh, he's got it pronounced there for me. Where, where were you stationed? I was actually stationed in Giessen. Uh, so, um, Giessen, Germany, uh, is a little bit north of Frankfurt in Germany. And uh, right up to uh, Route 5 there, and I was stationed on the base there that's uh, just outside the town on, I can't remember if it's on Ludwigstrasse, but uh, Giessen's rather famous for having been the home place of uh, Ludwig, I can't remember his first name, Johannes Ludwig maybe, who was the general, oh, Lieb, maybe it was Liebig? Oh, I can't believe, I can't remember that now. Anyway, the scientist who who, uh, who came up with the idea of, of a constrained minimum, the idea that uh, if you got a system that's dependent on many variables, whatever the one is that you're most scarce on is kind of the one that's going to control things. Um, but uh, Giessen, I was stationed there from 2003 to 2007, minus about 14 months in Iraq, and I do love the place. I would definitely recommend it for anyone who goes and visits. I can't say there's any major tourist things of note there, it's just a very nice town, so... Uh, and I would definitely double check everything I just said about Ludwig or Liebig, since I'm sure I'm forgetting that. It was Justin Liebig. Whichever the case, uh, I'm sure if you Google up Giessen, I'm sure you'll find it. The university is named for him. Um, thank you, Robert Friel. How would someone begin construction on an O'Neill cylinder? You know, that's the episode we have coming up kind of in is on uh, this, um, this upcoming Thursday is Life on Board on your cylinder. And we do talk a little bit about how we go about getting the initial funding for something like that there in terms of not the first one, but how people would do it in the future if they become a major habitat kind of thing. Um, where we're making thousands or millions of them. How would we get our funding for the first one is a very tricky question. Um, you know, you presumably putting that at the L4, the L5 point, and I suspect you'd either need a nation that was very devoted to it and had a ton of money like the US and, and was quite content to spend, you know, the equivalent of the entire military budget for a decade putting thing up there. Or you need an international effort, but the critical thing there is that if you wanted to realistically do a full-blown O'Neill cylinder, even with the smaller models, you would do that after you either had near-Earth asteroid mining or moon mining very firmly in place so you could be sourcing your raw materials off of that. Because the trickiest thing about one of those is, is just sourcing all that mass. Um, but uh, I would tend to think that's like your last stage of, of, uh, of early space uh, deployment. Um, you'd have other space stations that rotating like, uh, well, like Kaplana, the, uh, the one that Brian, uh, Versity designed that we often show here on the channel. That's much more modest or the gateway space station. That's much more modest. And I think that would be something you could conceivably build. Even then I'd prefer an international effort, not so much because one country couldn't fund something like that. That would be pretty expensive on anybody's budget, but because that, I don't know, I, I tend to prefer international space efforts where possible. You get, not necessarily every country, but it gets more more people with their skin in the game. And part of the problem we often have with these things is if you've got a lot of technologically developed countries, or, or countries that aren't, for that matter, um, that are not really actively participating in the space endeavor, they, uh, you know, they're not going to feel as invested into it as everybody else is. And of course, always nice to have the additional source of funding and personnel. Um, let's see... Herrera Missions asks, do you think there will be religion in the far future? Do you think that religion is part of any life forms besides us? 
you know, religion is a uh, vague term. I mean, yeah, it's sometimes easier to say ideology. If you try to list out the characteristics of, of, of you know, what is religion, you're going to find a bunch of other things that are usually accepted as religions that are not going to meet that uh, meet that um, trait list perfectly. So, um, yeah, that's kind of an impossible question to ask, uh, to give an answer for, because just because the term can mean so many things. Uh, I, on the other hand, just talking about what we what we tend to think of as religion in the modern context, um, just like let's say the big four or five religions now, I'd be very surprised if they went anywhere uh, in the uh, in the you know next few millennia at least. You know, um, I think that uh, well, I always want to be careful talking on that subject a bit, but uh, I can't really think of any reason why civilization would abandon those in the short term that doesn't already exist at the moment. So. Um, as to other alien species having them, I can't think of any reason why they would not. Um, you probably want to talk to anthropologists about why those tend to form up so much. And then, of course, you can talk to a theologian or a psychologist or a philosopher as to why we tend to have them still these days or why they are, you know, growing or not growing or so forth. But when you have a very large and divorced society, which is what you expect from one that was interplanetary, let alone interstellar. You'd, I'd be very surprised if there was any ideology that was not, uh, or religion that was not, you know, there somewhere as a war. Um, just because you're going to have so many sub, you know, we only get more divorced with time, even though we've gotten much more numerous. I think we actually get divorced as a war. Um, and I think that's only going to be a trend that continues in the future. You need something that kind of pushes for homogeneity homogeneity um, to really have something like that disappear. And I'm not really seeing any real push for that in the way society would tend to look like it's going to be formed up in the future. But that's my guess as good as anybody else's. Um, let's see. John Miller asks, as regards astrobiology and such, what do you think is the likelihood that life could actually exist that uses something other than carbon giving the additional energy that would be required? You know, I actually just got done yesterday writing the draft script up for the non-carbon-based life episode that was the poll winner, so I'm going to punt on that question until that episode. So we'll classify that as uh, watch and find out, uh, WAFO. Um, Albert Jackson asks, if you're starting a science YouTube channel, how can you obtain credibility if you don't have a professional college or graduate degree? Any thought on that? Sorry for the odd question. I suppose it's not really an odd question. Um... You know, not, I mean, quite a few of the folks who have science channels don't have a degree. I do, of course, in physics. But, um, I mean, if you know your material and you stick to what you know, I mean, like, uh, well, Joe Scott, he covers science quite a lot and often quite well, but his degree, I think, was in marketing. Uh, he's not a science background uh, for that, but he, he does his research on his topics. And he doesn't try to overgo, you know, to areas that aren't his, you know, you speak to an area that you research properly, incredibly, and uh, and the same goes for me. It's why we're careful with a lot of our biology episodes, and you don't go outside that when you're discussing it, and that's the key thing there. And you make sure everybody knows if you make mistakes or that you can be wrong. Um, Fraser Kane, uh, Universe Today, one of our great friends, he does way more astronomy than I do. Uh, he's literally written a book on it, and yet I don't think he has a degree in physics or astronomy. Um, Cody is was an undergrad when he's got his channel started, and he knows his geology quite well. Um, better than me. <laughs> so, you know, it's just one of those things where um, don't cover topics you don't know, obviously. And that go, you know, you don't have to have a degree in gardening to have a gardening channel, though. It isn't going to hurt, but as to credibility, uh, what do people find credible? Uh, degrees help, but a degree is just a way of telling people that other folks have, you know, that know the field have said that you know it, right? That's pretty much what a degree is for. It's a voucher from other experts that says this person knows this topic. Um, and in the absence of that, you just have to, you know, uh, walk the walk as it were. You, if you, if you know your field, if you know the field you're discussing and you put proper effort into researching it, then credibility will follow as people who have been watching it say, oh yeah, he's got that right so far. If on the other hand, you're putting out trash and folks are constantly making corrections to what you do, then you're not going to get credibility. So the key to credibility, of course, uh, is to uh, is to know your material so that you're credible. <laughs> so, don't know if that answers the question very well, though. Um, <clears throat> one thing I would say about folks starting channels, and you know, the whole point of YouTube is to start a channel if you have something you feel like talking about. But at least that's what I usually think of this point. And I know a lot of channels. And I usually try to help out a lot of new science channels to get started, and most they they get started, they do well, and then they kind of. Class because it takes a lot of time and effort to really put in there and doesn't usually grow as fast as they'd like. 
Um, but then you have a lot of folks who start up a channel on any, any topic. It doesn't really matter what it is. Um, and you know, they don't really invest the energy into doing it right because what they're really trying to do, at least from what it seems like to me in many cases, is uh, gather a following who wants to listen to what they have to say as opposed to put out material of a specific, of, you know, specific topic that they feel people should know. You know, I did not do an episode, that original episode on mega structurals because I was looking to gave me a big audience. I was surprised it got more than a handful of views, a little handful of views. Um, I did it because that was an interesting topic to me and I knew some folks who might benefit from the material and I wanted to just stop having to repeat it all the time to them and just put it in a nice or easier format. And that's kind of growing with time. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with enjoying your work, but at the same time, if you're doing it because uh, you just want the attention as a war, that's not going to result in a good channel. You know, do material, do it properly, uh, do it with quality, and do it on something you know what you're doing about. Um, the enemy asks, hello there, I'm currently studying material science, bionics, and photonics here in Germany, and I love it, but when do you think human scientists will become obsolete? You know, I I don't like to use the term human when discussing things that are like what we say a transhuman or artificial intelligence context. I think that uh, whether we're talking about an AI or a cyborg or any of those things, I suspect more often than not, anything that actually has a personality is going to think of itself as a human, but at the very least is going to think of itself as a person. It's got a personality. And so usually when we talk about futuristic context, we're not talking about something that's very much a baseline human, you know, one that would be alive right now, for instance. I just find it easier to say person. It avoids a lot of the confusion. You know, they might have some AI or robot or some uplifted cat or dog that does the thinking. And as to when people will be redundant, I have no idea. I, I wouldn't think we'd ever be obsolete. But then again, wouldn't you say someone who was born 4,000 years ago is pretty obsolete? They don't know the material from nowadays. Uh, same basic fundamental makeup as we have. You know, it's the software more than the hardware that matters. And the hardware is probably upgradable if you want to stay relevant on that field and you can't do it otherwise. Um, Cthulhu Photogon asks, question, are videos that don't win the polls forever lost to the ether? No, they are not. Um, when it comes to, like, the ones we do here, because we do polls in a bunch of other places, we actually just got around to doing one on our Discord server for the first time recently, and we still haven't done one on Reddit, because I haven't figured out how to do one on Reddit. Um, there's two places, though, that we go to for submissions of, uh, topics. Uh, one is over on Facebook on the post for the, uh, for the Science Futurism group, and that is linked in the episode description here for the live stream. Uh, every so often I'll run an open poll, and Facebook's poll option allows us to have people add their own option right into that poll, and people can vote on it. So I'll just pop it up there, and people will fill it out, and then I look and see what the... Usually I'll take the top one and make that an episode, and they'll take, you know, five of the top one ups, usually the first five, but maybe there'll be a topic I don't want to try to do, and put those over on YouTube as the five options for the poll there. YouTube only has to do five options, and doesn't let me have feedback. Uh, for Patreon, we do polls there, they let me have 25 topics there. So when we do one there, I'll have a thread, and people can't add them in, so I'll have a thread that says topic suggestions. And we'll collect all those up in that thread, and I'll put them into something that looks like a title format, and we'll run a poll on that, and we'll just run with the top one there, and maybe we'll take the top. Usually after the Patreon ones, I'm doing like the top three or four, because the Patreon crowd is usually folks who have been uh, watching the channel forever today, so they know what topics I've already done, and they tend to know which ones are easier for me to do, so... Um, but when it comes to the YouTube ones here, is it dead forever if it loses the poll? No. Uh, I don't keep track of the ones, like, for instance, Impact of Superconductors. That one has come up as somewhere between second to fifth place on a ridiculous number of polls, so we probably won't be doing an episode on that at some point. But no, it's not a dead topic if it loses the poll, but, uh, it's a question that sometimes I'll do them just because I really want to do that episode, even if it came in, like, fifth place. But usually it's just put it back up on the poll and people might change their mind and be more interested in that lower date. Um, but let's see. Uh, we'll take another couple questions before you head to the to the uh, to the break. White Weasel Gamey asks: Given their relatively complicated nature and the issue of needing dense energy source, will handheld handheld laser guns always be a thing of science fiction? Probably yes. Um, you know, it's it's thing is the laser guns always seen as like blowing a hole through somebody. And the thing is, that's very energy wasteful uh, as a means of, of, of damaging someone. Kinetic energy, your typical bullet has a couple thousand joules, joules of energy into it, right? A couple thousand joules. Um, you know, a sword or an axe thrust might have more than that. It's not as accurate. Uh, a couple thousand joules of energy would, you know, heat up a large cup of water to boiling point. It's not exactly a small... Sorry. A couple thousand joules of energy would not even heat up a cup of bottle. That would be like raise a degree or two. 
um, that's not something you're going to use to blow a hole through somebody. So you're throwing more energy at it to blow a hole through somebody. Say, why don't I just throw that into a magnetic field to accelerate the bullet up that's much bigger? You can blow a hole in a tank that way with something. Um, and the same issue we have like laser propulsion. We don't really talk about laser propulsion in a modern context too much, while we do talk about it in terms of the interstellar laser highways, for instance, because it's basically useless as propulsion, it's energy inefficient, until you're at very high speeds, where you can't realistically, you know, uh, get that kind of exhaust velocity out of your, uh, out of your propellant. Uh, whereas the exhaust velocity of photons, obviously, the speed of light. Um, but so yeah, I really can't see laser guns in that classic blow a hole in your fashion going out of style, but we use lasers on our guns all the time in the military. Um, especially we used a lot of infrared lasers and infrared spotlights, uh, a lot of the NPAC 2 alphas we had about, uh, generally those took a little bit of time to actually calibrate to the gun, but, uh, they're very handy ones to use for night siphons. So that's an example of a laser being used on a gun already. Um, and, uh, last question before we go to break. Tangent Ovaltine asks, if you haven't done so already, I would love to see a video dedicated to the theme of turning Jupiter into a sun or red dwarf. How we go, how would we could we do it and what would the consequences for Earth and Saturn's moons, Mars, and the rest of the system? Very 2000, I know, but super fun. 2001, it was actually 2010 that they did that in the sequel to 2001, uh, Clark's book. Um, but um, I think we actually have discussed doing that in the colonizing Jupiter episode or maybe one of the other ones. It's not actually a good idea to do that. Uh, even if you could artificially compress it that way, but, uh, we might take a look at that sometime. I, I have wanted to spend more time in Jupiter cause I always felt like we kind of rushed by Jupiter fairly quickly when we, uh, when we did that one, maybe we could do somewhere on Jupiter and follow up to, uh, well, somebody make a note of that. Somewhere on Jupiter is a follow up to springtime Mars and winter on Venus. Um, but, uh, all right, we're going to go ahead and head to break and we'll be back in a few minutes. While we're taking a quick break, now is an excellent time to grab a drink and a snack and get some more questions in for the second half of our show. This is our first live stream in the new year and I want to take a moment to thank all the folks who helped make this show possible. From all the volunteers on the SFIA crew, who help out on the episodes, or moderating our forums, to all the donors and sponsors who help fund the show, and of course, everybody watching it. SFIA relies on word of mouth, or its digital equivalent, so every time you watch a video, hit the like button, leave a comment, or share it with others, it helps us out. And since the channel has grown in subscribers every month since that first video came out in late 2014, obviously a lot of folks have been doing just that, and I want to let you know how much I appreciate that. I also wanted to particularly thank our script editors today, as we've been doing about two scripts a week of late as I've prepped various Nebula exclusive and bonus episodes, and have been trying to get ahead on scripts in advance of my wedding at the end of April, and some anticipated downtime from that. We'll still have our regular weekly episodes then, but I'm getting them done early. I suspect sometimes folks assume our editors just correct my misspellings and bad grammar, and indeed that is quite the task some days. But they're generally very active in the actual material itself, either on the brainstorming or editing end, and I want to make sure credit goes where credit is due. I should also note that all our episodes do have a credit roll at the end to acknowledge all the editors, animators, and musicians whose work we use, and those are also in the credits on episode descriptions, frequently with a link next to their name to see more of their work, and I'd invite you to explore those. There is some phenomenal talent in the crew here, and I count myself very lucky that SFIA tends to attract such folks. We have a pretty busy schedule coming up and of course you can see the upcoming schedule for February popping up in the upper right of the screen as we talk today, and that simply wouldn't be possible without all those folks helping out, and again, I can't thank them enough. If you do run into them on our forums or checking out their work on their own sites, let them know how much their help is appreciated. All that said, let's get back to the show. Okay, and we're back. Uh, Hun Narafton fan 19 asks, which place or system are you most hopeful or would you think life is most likely to occur based on our current knowledge of astronomy? <coughs> um, hmm. Well, in system, I would actually tend to put the odds best still for like Europa or Callisto. Um, Callisto. Um, I, there's always option that there's something, you know, bacterial still living on Mars if anything ever lived there. Out system... Ah, uh, you know, obviously there's always that tendency to want to look at some of the ones with the Kepler surveys, and, uh, but, you know, there's no one I'd really say I had a big preference for for that. Uh, even it's got a lot of plants in it that are in the habitable zone and are roughly Earth mass, I would consider to be good candidates, but 
nothing really sticks out in mind. We eat bigger sorbets, more sorbets, um, you know, more of actual catalogs of plants that are in the earth mass zone. Um, Dustin King asks, what would you do if you were the Supreme Dictator for Life of NASA? What if you had the DOD's budget? Um, if I had the DOD's budget, I would actually not throw that entire thing at space travel because so much of it is, you know, you can't always advance these things just by tossing money their way. I'd love to see more funding for it, but uh, overfunding things sometimes just results in waste. What I would do if I had a very large budget to play with, though, <clears throat> would be to put, uh, I'd say the things I'd really like to try to do first, um, probably play around with mass drivers here on Earth as a launch system a bit, but uh, an, a, a small rotating space station, you know, something considerably bigger than the ISS, but something big enough to <coughs> comfortably simulate both moon and Mars gravity, and then, you know, while that's staging up, you'll get a moon base in place, a basic one, and then start trying to work on um, options for doing, you know, mining and, and smelting on the moon to see if we can actually start getting things like power satellites and, uh, you know, orbital shades and mirrors in play, and start sourcing enough material out of that to build bigger space stations. At that point, that was going well. That's when I'd start thinking about maybe doing an orbital ring. Again, orbital ring is not super advanced technology, though you need a lot of prototyping. But it's more that into a certain amount of throughput into space. A lot more than we have nowadays. They they don't serve any purpose. I think the analogy I usually use is when you're going to Oregon for the first time, you take the Oregon Trail. Uh, you don't build a freeway or you know a rail line out there until there's already a lot of people living up there. So orbital rings are what you do when you start having lots more people. You know when you got space hotels, when you got you know big freighters coming in carrying material from uh, R4 zero G manufacturing or you know gold shipments from asteroids that sort of thing. Um, Morv Johnson, thank you very much. Thoughts on ultra-dense deuterium, Rydberg matter as nuclear fusion fuel. Possible episode on exact reactor designs. Um, it's got its possibilities. The thing is, um, well, DD, uh, deuterium-deuterium fusion would be the nicest one to do, because since it does involve tritium, which is pretty rare, uh, we could actually just fuel it locally. Uh, same for things involving helium-3, we just don't have much helium-3 on Earth. Um, and the ultra dense versions are obviously, if you can keep them confined that way, you can keep your coil going, but it's, it's still fundamentally the same problem we have with Takamak and other designs for reactors or like the Polywell or some of the other variations. I see the fusion power episode for discussion of some of these, but it's got potential and that's, that's so out of a fusion. I almost feel like I'm going to jinx it by saying that's the one that's going to work. So thank you very much, Edward Gehring. What do you think about Teoscope proposed by astronomer David Kipping? Now, that was, I'm trying to remember for sure if I know what that is. I think that was the one where you wanted to turn the entire planet's connected radio telescopes into one big single telescope. And if I'm remembering that one right, then that is something I would definitely like to give a try on. Um, you know, we hook a lot of radio telescopes together right now to, uh, to get a bigger, you know, resolution, bigger image. But that requires a lot of coordination and timing and trying to set them all up to do that nowadays requires more sophistication, more computerization, but that's something we're getting much, much better at. So if we can do it, assuming that I'm, I'm remembering the telescope correctly uh, as that object, then I'm definitely in favor of it. Uh, Bokov Constantine asks, Isaac, do you have plans to expand on other platforms or formats, even besides YouTube? Um, well, we've got uh, our presence on Nebula Curiosity Stream. We've got ourselves on uh, Bit, or is it BitChain for quite some time for downloading videos. Uh, and of course, we're out on SoundCloud, iTunes, and I think I'm going to start coming out on Spotify Anchor fairly soon too, but I have to finish researching that because I just became aware that existed. Uh, interesting thing about being a futurist is how often you find there are technologies you've never heard of or apps or software you've never heard of. Um, and uh, so, yes, we're always trying to expand a platform to some degree, but fundamentally, we'll, you know, we host out of YouTube and other things are mostly made to show, show people have access to it. Again, like the audio only on iTunes or SoundCloud for people who afford just to listen or we embed them on Facebook or Reddit and things like that. So uh, if other streaming services like YouTube pop into existence, of course, we'd start going to those too. With a lot of them, though, there's always a hesitation initially. It's the same for like alternatives to Patreon. It's not just, is this system reliable and does it have enough audience so that it's actually worth taking the time to put your videos up there, which is a little bit more complicated than people would tend to assume, but is everything secure? And with a lot of new ones, one gets iffy, you know, like for instance with donations, say, well, we've got this new site that uh, lets people donate to you. I say, that's great. I need to be sure that it's not storing these people's information in a way that's going to lead them open to to something, you know. 
um, if you're raising money from folks, you have a certain commitment to make sure that you're doing it safely. So we have to have to do a lot of double checking there. The same applies for platforms people might subscribe to. Is it is it ethical? Is it safe? Is it secure? And sadly, a lot of times, even if the ethics and the intent is there of a smaller platform, they just don't got the resources to really ensure that everything is running smoothly and secure. Um, <clears throat> Baseball Duster asks, would you consider doing a video, uh, in-depth video on strange stars? Um, stars made of, quark, of strange quark matter, uh, strange that is always tempting to look at, but there's so much theory on that, I'm not sure if we ever do an entire episode on that. I think we did discuss them in the Compendium Stars very briefly, though. Um, Engine 1213 asks, what do you think the distant future of government is? Do you think corporations would end up controlling space instead of traditional nation-state? Yeah, I kind of feel like saying traditional nation-states are not actually all that traditional. Um, like, what we think of as nation-states these days did not exist until four or five hundred years ago. You know, maybe a little earlier if we want to count, maybe early France, but uh, this is a bit of a newer system. You know, you go back to like... Maybe with Rome, you could make a bit of an argument on that because later Rome, it wasn't just about who lived in the city, but most of the great empires of the past were centered around a specific city-state and everybody else who was either uh, in, their, in their shadow or was one of their conquests. Um, it didn't have that kind of nationalism that we see nowadays. That's a more recent phenomenon. It is constantly mutating. Uh, as to whether or not it's going to be one of those cyberpunk kind of things where the corporations take over, I I, I don't see that. I think that's, that's one of those examples where... You know, you always have power blocks inside any system that move to have more power. That's kind of that for good or bad. It could be a very noble organization too. And so, whatever those are, the main whatever form power takes in a given system, you would expect those to have heavy influence over the government or the culture or civilization was at the time. Um, but um, you know, we say corporations, and people misuse that term all the time anyway. If you live in a village or a city, in, in the U.S., for instance, you live in a corporation. Uh, you know, Geneva Lake here that I'm in, that's an incorporated municipality. Um, whereas the township I, I live in, that it's part of, is a township that's part of the state itself. Uh, just in South Mean Geneva City, that's an incorporated city. Um, almost every large group, things like PACs, for instance, those are corporations. They have to be incorporated, and it's basically our term for any group of people that's been officially sanctioned to put together under some sort of charter uh, so that you have the legal power to sue them, for instance. Um, and they can legally pay taxes or legally own property. Um, and so in that regard, you know, it, it's uh, any government it could be seen as a corporation already. But these things change with time and with technology and culture. So it, it, trying to guess what kind of government system we'd have in the future, I certainly would hope democracy stays popular, but you spread out to a million worlds around a million stars and uh, you know trillion trillion habitats around those stars perhaps if you go cardship two on all of them uh, you're gonna have many 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 different types of government I would tend to think you know uh, a thousand variations on, on the same basic themes and again you can have a hundred different democracies that are mixes of other things too and and not have any that are exactly identical we'd say for instance uh, is the United States a democracy or a republic? And of course, the answer is that's like asking if an apple is red or a fruit. These are not contradictory concepts. And what else is it? Well, it's a gerontocracy, of course. Older people tend to be in charge. Can he be president to your 35 or in the Senate to your 30? So it's also a gerontocracy. It's also a crytalky, a rule by judges. And you know these things come in many different flavors, and you see them in many different countries in different formats. So it's... You know, you have an almost infinite number of government variations you could have in play just from what we think of as the more modern versions. And I would expect to see almost every last one of those pop up. Uh, some might go out of way because they're not really the most efficient. On the other hand, you know, we say we get more efficient, we get more practice than the future. On the other hand, if you're in a post-scarcity civilization, you don't necessarily care about how efficient your government is, um, especially things that are peaceful. So you might have some very inefficient ones that were in place just for ideological reasons. Uh, uh, Brazilius Mapo asks, Isaac, do you know what happened with the Hades 9 game? Is it still going on or was the project cancelled? Last I heard it was still going on. I haven't talked to Nick in a few months. Um, video game development can go fast or slow and, uh, you know, they mostly just talk to me when they want some lore aspects for how the given science and technology is working. So, uh, as I'm not a computer programmer and I know a lot of their things have to do with how they can emulate this or that. So, I've not heard from them in a few months, but last I heard everything was running strong. So, uh, I should probably check in on that. Uh, let's see. 
Thank you, Ben Cheney. Uh, hey, Isaac, new subscriber and big fan. Looking forward to hearing about life on the O'Neill Sondo this week. Uh, it should be a good episode. We actually just uh, finished the draft video for that yesterday, which is later than I usually had them. But we had some graphics coming in, um, and uh, there's sometimes delays getting those up, those drafts. But uh, let's see, which one I'm working on right now is the uh, video for Coexistence of Humans and AI. That's a bonus episode. It's up on February 9th. Um, but it should be a fun episode and it was a great deal of fun to put together and we had some very nice graphics that were designed just for that episode. So, um, Lone Gunman 83, thank you very much. Would you ever do a video critiquing the Expanse as civilization, what they could be doing better? Probably not. The Expanse is one of those few exceptions I've made to actually doing an episode kind of on a, a show back when we did, uh, Surviving the Expanse of, of Space. It wasn't too focused on that show, but... Generally speaking, while I don't mind mentioning a given book or a given setting uh, in an episode, I don't really like to make the entire episode about that. Now, there is always a temptation to do that. Uh, I thought about doing uh, either a Sci-Fi Saturdays or Sci-Fi Sundays episode once a month that was just talking about some random show or game and, and focusing on that. But there are a lot of shows that do reviews. Uh, SF Debris is one of my favorites for that and um, you know sci-fi shows. And we might dip our hands and do it occasionally, but at this time, not so much. But uh, still waiting for that season to come out, though. But we'll see how that goes. A lot of times when something changes, which uh, group is doing production with, the show can get better or worse. So it was a very good show. So maybe it'll get better. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed. So it's a good show. And I would love to finish the book series. But I decided that unlike with Game of Thrones, where I read the books, um, I'm not going to read any of the Expanse novels past about where they're at. So um, in the TV show. Jude Evan asks, what do you reckon is the most profitable use of AI? Most profitable use of AI? Uh, stock market, probably. Uh, probably using it to analyze trends on the stock market. <laughs> so, um, File Dragon 1408 asks, uh, if there was one career that would be most impactful on positive future, what would it be? Artificial intelligence research, probably. <laughs> that might be biasing for the previous question. Um, you know, it's... Uh, we you know we want to be kind of careful saying that uh, human civilization keeps getting better from better science and technology because while that is certainly true that's not the whole effect it's sometimes the cult leading the horse too um, a lot of times our ethics and our morality improve because we have a you know more knowledge more more prosperity to be able to sometimes to afford ethics as it were uh, at the same time though I don't really like to encourage folks to ever think of improvements to society as being strictly limited to science and technology getting better. Um, so a positive future, um, maybe a politician, you know, um, I have quite a few friends who are in that field and they, they, they buck the norm. They actually have ethics and <laughs> I'm quite fond of them. I'm engaged to one, but in terms of scientific research, I would probably say that AI research or, um, medical research on either DNA gene therapy or uh, neurology and mind augmentation would be the ones that would tend to have the most positive effect on us. Education technology, which would probably involve neurology and AI too. Those would be the ones that would probably be most important. If you can actually get people learning faster, for instance, the, or learning better, that has a huge impact on society. Same too for life extension. So it's kind of hard to nail down on one that would be most positive. But uh, a lot of times a technology can be the, you know, Technology has no ethics in itself. One technology can be turned into a, a horrible tool of oppression or help, uh, you know, depending on how you choose to use it. Uh, thank you very much, Twilight Miss. Um, I appreciate that very much. Mirabella, Bell, Mirabella Tevagard asks, what are your thoughts on the United States Space Force? Um, it's a bit overdue. Uh, we've been talking about putting that in place since Reagan's day, um, possibly before, but of course that, for those who remember the Star Wars program from the 80s, and it keeps coming up, same as going back to the moon keeps coming up, and I'm glad to see one of these finally got moving. I, I regret very deeply that it's become a bit of a political issue, because it's it shouldn't be. It's been something the military's been asking for for a while, or at least parts of the military have. The Air Force until the uh, 1960s or 1950s, I can't remember which, was part of the uh, United States Army as the U.S. Air Corps. And actually it's taken out of Fort Sill, which for all of us who were artillery went to uh, boot camp and training at. But uh, they wanted to be a separate command so they could focus better on doing their specific job. Uh, and we've had um, mostly the Air Force covering the space end of things for, for decades now. And it's reaching the point where in terms of our interest, they are, you know, seems we probably need a cybersecurity department that will be separate. Uh, 
you know, uh, virtual Space Force. Uh, it's helpful sometimes to have a separate branch. On the other hand, I do sometimes feel like it can set the um, bottle rolling on too many subdivisions. Um, you really have no reason to have a, a separate branch of the United States military until you are at least a divisional strength. And uh, and I don't mean pretendo divisional strength where you've got well, you know one general with two colonels underneath him, we have two lieutenant colonels under each of them, we have two majors under them, and you end up with some division that's got like 3,000 people and instead of like fifteen to 20,000 people. But generally, if you're not up to at least divisional strength, I, I wouldn't see a reason to have a separate command. But there was also something we said about foresight. We're only going to need to expand our interest in space. Because it gets some weird press. I don't know why people think we're going to be launching up in space with all sorts of like, you know, space troops or something like that. It's, it has to do mostly with satellites. Everyone <laughs> was there was going to be on the ground for now. <laughs> so, uh, Richard Sleeth asks, uh, what are your thoughts about on a train to the space... Excuse me. What are your thoughts on the train to space system that is being talked about? Do you have any ideas that would be a better idea for the concept? I'm afraid I'm not sure what you're referring to there. Um, like we have the orbital ring or the Lofstrom loop, which are arguably like that. Obviously, I'm a very big proponent of the orbital ring, though, again, not at this time. To me, the orbital ring is something you build like a century down the road when you have the need for it. Same as like a freeway or a rail line. And then actually we'll let you take a train up to space at war. And I think we've discussed it in that episode and the others, but there are some interesting ways you can chain together various uh, various rings to create something that allow you to actually do direct transport even directly to the moon on a train uh you'd be very careful how you're matching things up to to move those around so um but uh it's always nice if you don't have to use propellant um you know you don't have to deal with the rocket equation then and you can reclaim a lot of your energy when you slow thing down so that's what's nice about train based kind of concepts for that vacuum trains especially can just accelerate up to really high speeds but seriously like with the hyperloop it whether or not we build one of those in the next decade or so they are something we'll probably want to build more of in the future just because there's no they're, they're much more efficient and of course it's just a question of is it worth the capital investment and you know how long does it take to do the engineering challenges um, we didn't already clear all questions out, did we? I think we have time for a few more questions, so let me scroll down and grab a couple more. Um, well, let me scroll down. <laughs> uh, uh, Jenny Lasili asks, what is your take on the possibility that we're still having major or great filters ahead of us? Um, this is a Fermi paradox question. When we look at the Fermi paradox, we have certain things that we think life would have to go through, or even before life, like uh, plants being the habitable zone of the system, right? That would control whether or not you'd ever expect them to turn into a civilization um, that we could detect now. Fermi paradox being focused on us being able to detect an alien civilization. So those mostly focus on people getting up to where we're at right now. But we couldn't actually detect ourselves if we were a couple of light centuries away right now. So there are four little steps ahead for anything to get to the point where we'd be able to detect it right now. And we call those the late filters. And they are presumably still ahead of us and we start to kind of get through them. I usually only use two blanket ones. Uh, the desire and capability to get to another solar system to colonize them. And the ability to avoid blowing yourself to smithereens with your technology. Uh, AI, for instance, by the way, is, is usually not going to be a Fermi Paradox filter because... If you you know Skynet takes over the planet now, you have Skynet instead of humans. It's not a fully paradox solution. It still wants to go out and explore, uh, or settle, or colonize, or resource harvest. Um, I don't see them being you know the thing about the late filters in terms of us is either something that lower the odds just a little bit, like nuclear war might kill a civilization off, or they're absolute ones. They're ones that nobody ever gets around. Um, you know, like if we'd say everybody always invented an AI that killed everyone then committed suicide you know if that was something that inevitably happened then nobody breaks through that filter and that would be a great filter because great filters are the ones we used to say are like lottery odds um a million to one that you get through them whereas our minor filters um or even what we sometimes call a lesser filter on the show uh, you know things that are less than less likely than not to uh, be a filter uh for most civilizations that sends me i think of for most of the ones that would qualify as late filters that either you know almost everybody gets through them or only uh you know a pretty big fraction do at least uh so i don't think we have any great or major filters ahead of us but if we do they they, they probably be on the great side things that just wipe almost everybody else out uh bullet old Sean asks uh what are your thoughts on the future of food what do you think it might be do you think it might ever be possible to consume pills that we full of nutrients N yes 
you could, <laughs> you know, a lot of the uh, old science fiction, uh, you'd have them have some kind of like high tech pill they could chew on that tasted like uh, an entire nice meal and, and kept them fully filled. And I was just, uh, I was recently watching the original Doctor Who episodes uh, from way back, the season one stuff in black and white. And in, I think, the first episode that had the Daleks in it, they uh, offered them some food pellets. And the thing is, um, if you suck all the water out of something, you, you can reduce it to a pretty small size, like dehydrated food. But uh, even if you're using the densest ones you can get, you know, it's nothing but fat, protein, and carbs with no water in it. You're not going to eat a pill that's going to have all that energy in it. So you can't have hypercompact food like that if you're using, you know, food. Um, now, on the other hand, if you've configured yourself to be some kind of cyborg, then you could possibly eat a pill of, of deuterium for your internal fusion reactor that would keep you going for a, a billion years or something like that. But that's not really what I call food in that context. Uh, but of course, you always have the option of just having. Yes, a pill full of nutrients. It's got, you know, 50 calories in it and you eat a thousand of them every week or something like that. Um, Bob asked, question, would you consider doing an in-depth video on deep dive VR technology? Is it more likely to happen within a lifetime than life extension? I don't know. Uh, we've done the virtual worlds episode, for instance, which kind of covered the, the science and futurism angle of it. And I do keep thinking about actually doing a virtual reality episode. I mean, an episode that's in virtual reality as opposed to uh, you know, on that topic, per se. Uh, just because we start having the assets available, we have to do that. But um, um, I don't know if I want to you know, go back to looking at VR in depth anymore. Because, again, we're not really interested in, in the specific technology of, of you know, what virtual reality is like going to be like in 10 years from now. Um, but we might do that. Um, as to whether we'll have virtual reality for life extension... Uh, do we have virtual reality now? I mean, I've got a VR headset. Um, do we have life extension now? Well, we've got uh, chemotherapy and uh, all sorts of life extension technologies, you know, uh, all medical technologies, life extension, and we already have some VR. So which one do we get first? I say, would you get biological immortality or full emotion VR first? And the answer is, I have no idea, but I would, I tend to think we'll have both before the end of the 24th century. So, um, hard to say for sure. All right, let's do one last question and we'll call it a quits for the day. Um, if I can find one last question. Uh, Adrahub asks, do you think that sci-fi energy weapons like plasma, laser, etc. are possible? Well, we were talking about the laser ones earlier on. Of course, you can make laser weapons. What's nice about a laser weapon in space is there's no air to, to spread the beam out and it moves at the speed of light, so it's very good for hitting things. And you can punch little tiny holes in things or fire communications with it. Um, but mostly it's the fact that it moves really fast. Uh, plasma weapons, that's actually a little bit more possible because plasma, unlike lasers, is actually containing particles. So they have a ton of momentum behind them for their energy that they're carrying. And so in a way, that's kind of like, um, I mean, bullets are really good at what they do, but you could see plasma weapons for some things, perhaps. As to a lot of the other high-tech weapons, you know, they're very popular in some of the early sci-fi and then became very popular in a lot of the early movies and video for sci-fi because they could do that special effect really well. But um, I don't think they're going to be nearly as prevalent as they as they people tend to expect that they would be. Um, you know, if you replace chemical weapons with something, it would probably be magnetic rail guns if you can make those portable and fast enough. But it's just hard to say. I'm sure there will be much more high-tech things in the long run, but you know we've been having our best century for technological improvements um, in this last century, and yet most of our weapons are things that were pretty much invented in you know uh, more than a century ago, and we still use models that are very similar to it, like the uh, the Mardus, the M2 50 cal Browning that we're so fond of in the army. Uh, that's literally the same gun it was, you know, when the thing got invented in the first half of the 24th century. Uh, sorry, 20th century, and uh, you make little improvements to things like the metallurgy for cooling down and things like that. So, all right. Um, I'll take one more there because that's an interesting question. So, do you think we could ever invent the ability to live without sleep? And of course, the answer to that is presumably yes. We don't absolutely have to have sleep, but we don't really know for sure what sleep already does. And uh, live people off, give people a good book reference to follow up for. The idea of um, not falling asleep, of uh, clearing out fatigue chemicals for fatigue poisons, uh, does get covered in Alistair Reynolds' Revelation Space series quite a lot, and that is a book series I'm sure I've recommended many times for, but a lot of folks would probably enjoy. 
Um, sleep is important to staying alive, as we say right now, and we could probably engineer people so that it wasn't necessary, but you'd probably have to play with their fundamental brain architecture quite heavily. So uh, then, of course, some people might ask whether or not they really want to cut that out. But you might find that uh, the period of time needed for sleep, some people might find some way to advance that to speed it up. Uh, you would talk about subjective reality, uh, subjective time experience. So you might have ways that you'd be able to speed up your sleep cycle, or you might do other things while you're asleep. You know, you might have your brain, if your mind augmented, running virtual utopias or something like that while you were asleep. So, or do some learning. But uh, it is a thought of our lives. At least I hope it's a thought of your life because that's not something you want to cut down on. You know, you do not enhance your productivity by sleeping six hours a day instead of eight. Um, so it's a thought of our lives. It would be nice to be able to use it for something else. But uh, be interesting how that ends up developing. For now, though, you know, sleep um, is probably going to stay necessary until you fundamentally alter the, the human brain architecture or so. I will go ahead and close out from there. Uh, thank you everybody so much for the questions. And if you have more of them, do leave them in the comments and I'll try to get to them next day or so. So again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on Thursday. So that wraps up today's live stream Q&A. If you had a question we didn't get to or another came to mind, feel free to put that in the comments on the video and I'll be back later this evening to answer them. You can also pop into our Facebook group, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, to discuss topics with like-minded individuals, or any of our other forums. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you Thursday.